We're coming to the end of our survey for listeners to Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We're thinking of doing some new things with the podcast in the next year for people to engage more with us. Want to know what people think? Please, if you haven't filled it out, go to Cleveland.com slash today. It won't take but a couple of minutes of your time. We'd appreciate your thoughts. It is Today in Ohio, the podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Courtney Astolfi, and Laura Johnston. And the lame duck session is keeping us hopping. We've got lots to talk about today, and it's unexpected. Let's start. What killed the proposal, at least for now, to make it harder for voters to change the Ohio Constitution? The anti-democracy proposal from Secretary of State Frank LaRose that seemed like it was skating through the legislature on its way to the May ballot. Lisa, a big surprise yesterday. Certainly was. House Joint Resolution 6 was like a train on a track ready to like barrel through the station. And they were trying to get it passed in this lame duck session, which ends sometime today or tonight. But it seems like there was some pushback from the Republicans about the hastiness of the bill and how it was introduced, and there was not a whole lot of talk about it. So House Joint Resolution 6 probably will not get through the lame duck. They might try to take it up in the regular session in January. Um, So again, HDR 6 raises voter approval on constitutional amendments to 60% from the current 50% plus one. Uh, Republicans would like to see it on the May 2023 ballot, but the deadline to get it on the ballot is February 1st of next year. House Speaker Bob Cup says it's doubtful that they'll get to that this early because they're introducing a lot of new uh, lawmakers in January. Also, uh, there's a new House Speaker, Derek Marin, so we'll see what direction he takes the House. Um, they worked on a lot of other amendments yesterday. They talked about raising the hourly minimum wage at to $15, changing the redistricting process. I hadn't heard anything about that. That would be nice. And enshrining abortion protections, which is the big one. And also the right to refuse vaccination mandates. So is that some of the things they're trying to get done in the next 12 hours? You know, you know how there are buildings that don't have 13th floors because they're considered unlucky. They had to stop numbering anything in the Ohio legislature with a six. (laughs) HB6, most corrupt ever, <laughs> this lunatic idea to take the power of the vote away from the people. I, I mean, I can't wait to find out what neutralized this. This, like you said, this was on the train going down the tracks. I think it would have it would lose with Ohio voters. Lots of groups are coming out opposed to this. Why on earth, with the ridiculous decisions made in the Ohio legislature, would voters remove voluntarily their power to undo that? And I think anybody tied to it would be branded as anti-democratic, that they really want the tyranny of the, the minority. And Frank LaRose is chief among them. He has plans on running for the U.S. Senate. This would stick to him like glue. Somehow, somewhere, they realize that there are members, Republican members, that are saying, I don't want to do this. This is not what I want my name Mm -hmm. tied to. And I can't wait to find out who those people were. We also need to find out what happened. It's gone back and forth a few times, but people pointed out that, hey, you're making it 60% for voters, but only 50% plus one in the legislature. And I know there was some talk of making them equal. They would both have to be at 60% approval, but I don't know what's happened to that. Yeah. And look, it's clear. This is they say it's not. This was about stopping an abortion amendment. 
They know what the percentage of voters are that want to enshrine the right to abortion in the Ohio Constitution. So they're trying to set a threshold that's just above it. It's a sleazy way of getting around the will of the people and to inflict their views, their minority views on the majority. That's Frank LaRose, Secretary of State. But it stopped, at least for now. It doesn't look like it's going to happen. And I think they'll have a hard time doing it in the new year as well. Big development. But like you said, we have till two or three in the morning to see what they do. The closer we get to them closing the session, the crazier stuff that they sneak <laughs> through. Our, we have a whole team of reporters that will be paying attention into the wee hours. It's Today in Ohio. The requirement for people to show photo IDs when they vote in Ohio is controversial, so it keeps changing. One of the big complaints about it was how it would affect people who vote by mail. Laura, what was the original proposal and how is that changing? So the original proposal contained a strict photo ID and the provision they debated on and off for a decade. But now, basically, they're saying that you could, uh, sorry, the changes that committed the Senate committee came through, you could vote for, by mail without a government-issued ID, just like under the current law, and you just could provide the last four digits of your social security number, your driver's license number, or a copy of your photo ID, and the same information could be used to return your ballot. So this is good news to me. I was worried I was going to have to make a copy of my license and you know go to the library, because who has a copier in their house at this point. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Give Andrew Tobias, our statehouse reporter, credit for picking up on this. Yes. That, that they were going to make you provide a, a copy of your photo ID. But instead, what they're going to do is make it harder to vote in person when you're physically present than it is from home when they can't see you. I, if, if anything, the, the possibility for fraud is greater in voting by mail because if you have a senile parent, you can fill out an application, send their stuff and get it back. They're going to make it easier to vote by mail than it is in person. How does that make any sense when what you're claiming the purpose of this is, is to reduce voter fraud? I get the inconvenience. I get what you're saying about what people have at home. But if this is about security, how does this make any sense? That's a very good question. And for a while, they were saying, OK, you're going to have to provide your driver's license number and your social the last four of your social, because right now it's a choice. But they changed that after some pushback, because I think a lot of people didn't, you know, it still would have. I don't know. I don't know how you can justify it, because if at least if you had to put in the number, that meant you had to have the ID. And now you don't. So I guess anybody who has trouble getting an ID should just vote by mail. Yeah, I th this is this is a strange one. It's almost like it's it's to rally the base because it doesn't make sense now. You're you're going well. You know the part of the problem is they don't like vote by mail. So maybe by compromising vote by mail, it's a multi step process to ultimately reduce it or get rid of it oh, because by by making it easier to have fraud there than by voting in person you might be steering fraud there let's face it there's almost no voter fraud in ohio so <laughs> no this is right all pointless. it's but, like a a long con if that's true because i was thinking the original idea to make you have to have a copy of your license would keep everybody from voting early and then it the only the super motivated people would end up and we all know that more democrats end up vote early than Republicans. So that was the conspiracy. But 
Senator Teresa Graverone, she's a Bowling Green Republican. She shepherded this bill through the committee processes. She's saying that this would promote public confidence in the accuracy of the election, the overall bill with the ID. She said that senators did change the bill in response to critical testimony from the public. I'm not sure how much testimony they could have gotten. I feel like everything has been, like you said, on a train, on a track, just railroading through. But it, it well, does raise a lot of questions. It's hilarious that they're saying it to give people confidence in the system because, let's face it, Republicans have spent the last four years trying to remove confidence in the Very system. Even point. the Secretary of State, while saying it's good in Ohio, was questioning the integrity of voting in other states. So, so of course, now people have less confidence in elections because you've spent four years telling them falsely that it's compromised. I don't know how this gives you confidence in the system when it has this big loophole at home. Fascinating development. It's today in Ohio. The Ohio Board of Education approved a Title IX resolution involving LGBTQ issues that originally would have encouraged school districts to defy the Biden administration and risk funding. What the board approved was way watered down. Courtney, by how much? Yeah, it seems like a lot. So the final version of version of this resolution, which the State Board of Education approved yesterday, you know, basically calls upon the General Assembly to resist federal executive branch attempts to undermine the original intent of Title IX as they see the original intent. And, you know, it, it, this resolution is in support of Dave Yost and 20 other uh, attorney generals from across the United States who have filed suit against the U.S. Department of Education for these Title IX protections for, for transgender students. But like you said, that's kind of where this resolution ends. A bunch of other stuff that was originally intended to be in here got cut from the final resolution. And now just to get a refresher here, Title IX came about in 1972. It was originally meant as a protection you know, for girls getting discriminated against in sports and in academics. Obama expanded it to to protect transgender students. Trump yanked those protections back and Biden's looking to reinstate them. And that's the big issue the Board of Education has here. But like you said, some key things were removed from this resolution. One, one important line that they took out in the final version was urging Ohio 600 some school districts to defy the federal guidance from the Department of Education. And and encouraging school districts to do that, and if they, they would have acted upon that advice, that potentially jeopardizes their federal funding. So that that was a big one that, that came out. You know, it also took out a mention of how transgender students would use the bathrooms and the locker rooms of the gender they identify with. They, they took out a line of support for a piece in uh, General Assembly legislation that that would essentially require school officials to out kids unwillingly. So a lot of these more insidious pieces were removed, but, you know, people are still not pleased that this resolution went through in general, outlining support for this, this general stance against the federal government's reading of this. I don't think the timing of this can be discounted. Let's face it, for the past few years, the state school board has been in Looney Tunes land, doing all sorts of things to politicize the schools and making ridiculous determinations. For the first time in years, lots of people are paying attention to what they're doing because they stopped focusing on education and started focusing on politics. 
Now, though, there's a bill to completely neutralize them and take almost all policymaking and put it in a Department of Education that answers to the governor, the way it works in a lot of states. So their existence is threatened. The fact that they passed a very watered down version of this is interesting. You're right. They still passed it. It still is offensive to a great many people, but it's not the the lightning rod that it was before when they're basically telling school districts, be political, risk your money, take a political stand. Yeah, I I found it interesting to hear, you know, how the individual board of education members kind of influenced this this initiative, right? So this whole thing was introduced by member Brendan Shea of Madison County. He homeschools his kids. He introduced the original resolution, but then we saw Mike Toll, he's an appointed member to the board from Sydney in the western slice of the state. He's the one that really took the the the, the more offensive lines out of the bill here. So I'm I'm curious about those internal politics. Yeah. Well, they've got to be struggling because the soul of that thing could be gutted quite soon. It's today in Ohio. The Ohio legislature is largely populated by lawmakers who don't represent Ohio's cities, so I guess we shouldn't be surprised by this next story. What the Northeast Ohioans think of all the laws Ohio lawmakers have passed to make it easier for people to get guns. Courtney, coming back to you. Yeah, uh, people's preferences in Northeast Ohio, according to this Baldwin-Wallace poll of 500 or so people in the, I believe, the seven-county region, around Cuyahoga County, not not so much on, on board there. We found that a majority, you know, when asked what measures they'd like to see put in place to prevent something like an awful mass shooting, you know, respondents to the poll, they gave their most preferred answer at 54%. People want red flag laws, right? So, so that was an interesting takeaway. But then we also found that a majority of respondents here want to see the ban on the sale of semi-automatic weapons like AR-15s, and they want to see expanded background checks for buyers of guns. And not quite half, about 48% want to see uh, better background checks, you know, but the least popular response, which Ohio has, gosh, I don't even remember when now, but the least popular response here with just 18% of respondent support was to arm teachers in schools. And that's the route Ohio's obviously gone. Yeah, Governor DeWine came into office with a common sense set of things that would have reduced some of the dangers from guns, red flag laws and things like that. The legislature wouldn't pass him. And then he turned around and he signed every bill that's come his way, making it easier not a surprise that people in an urban area would be opposed to that because they're the ones that are seeing the results of the prevalence of guns, but the rural areas have a different opinion. So Yeah, and I also think uh, what, what was interesting in these poll findings was who is more likely to support some of these gun control measures. Uh, we found, you know, female folks, white folks, those with college degrees, Also, an interesting demographic um, difference here was among those who favor the banning of semi-automatic weapons. Older folks, uh, 71% of those 65 and older are in favor of banning semi-automatics, and that was a much higher response than younger folks. So I found that curious, but it also bears noting here that Baldwin-Wallace recently did another statewide poll outside the seven-county Northeast Ohio region, and, and 
And they found, you know, like 60% of people oppose the new concealed carry law. So you can kind of extrapolate extrapolate some of these preferences out of our region and into the broader state. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Larry Householder suffered a pretty big setback Tuesday in his plans for defending himself in a trial next year involving the biggest bribery scheme in Ohio State House history. A judge denied a request he made, a request that we called ridiculous when he made it. Laura, what was he asking for and what did the judge say? He wanted to toss some statements that were secretly recorded by undercover agents from lobbyist and householder and ally Neil Clark. He died after he was indicted. But these are pretty damning. When you hear the word pay to play, you're like, oh, okay, I know what that means. (laughs) So the prosecutors alleged in these court documents that Clark made several statements implicating Householder, including was that guys like Householder go to the wall too often and everyone knows they're pay to play. So those were the direct quotes. U.S. District Judge Timothy Black granted the prosecutor's request to use this tape. He He also denied some motions from Householder. And obviously, we all know this This is going to start this winter that we could actually see what happened in the state house with House Bill 6 and First Energy. And um, householders' attorneys are saying that statements were idle chatter and nothing that really tells what happened, that they were just braggery. And But, I mean, if you're a householder, you have to think, oh, oh, no. Well, the lawyers are in a challenging spot because they know what's coming. It's a tidal wave of evidence against him. And he is going down. He's fighting it to the very end. So they're going to fire shots in all directions to try and get any benefit, any advantage they can. This one seemed ridiculous. And the judge obviously saw it that way, too. But Householder did have a win yesterday. So he asked the court to stop the government from introducing a couple of communications related to Sam Randazzo's alleged wrongdoing. He's the head. He was the head of the PUCO. And the prosecutors said, surprisingly, that they don't plan to introduce any evidence on that. So that issue is moot. So I guess that's good news for Randazzo. Or sorry, good news. Well, both of them, I guess. Okay. Today in Ohio. When Cleveland passed an anti-balloon launch law a while back, we marveled at how much damage they do to power lines, especially the Mylar balloons that conduct electricity. But there's a new threat to power lines, says First Energy, a modern one. Lisa, what is it and what's the utility doing to try and combat it? Yes, there's an increasing amount of drones in the air, not just in Northeast Ohio, but all over. Uh, First Energy has an ad campaign about drone safety. They launched it this summer, but they're making a renewed push for the holidays because it's likely a lot of kids and some adults will probably find a drone under the Christmas tree this year. So they've been putting ads out on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat to reach younger people. They've also created a video game called Drone Safety Zone, and you can find that at dronesafetyzone.com if you want to play. But drones are really exploding. I mean, there are 870,000 drones registered with the Federal Aviation Administration. There are 307,000 certified remote pilots, but drones and toys that are under a half a pound in weight do not need to be registered. And so there's probably tens of thousands more than they know of. So drones can get tangled up in power lines. They can cause outages, but their main concern is safety. So First Energy spokeswoman Lauren Saberka says, please don't be afraid to call us if you get stuck. We're not going to yell at you. We just don't want you to get up there and try to retrieve your drone by yourself. There's a phone number, one 
L-I-G-H-T-S-S, you can call if your drone gets tangled in electrical equipment. And she said there have been many incidents. I can't share details probably because it's a security issue, but Saberka says that this messaging could have helped prevent a few local mishaps over the last year. And she has a couple of tips. You know, don't fly at night or in bad weather. Fly your drone at 400 feet or below and try to stay at least 200 feet away from electrical equipment, power lines, utility boxes, what have you. Yeah, I imagine the worst danger is if it gets stuck and people start trying to poke up mm-hmm. with poles and things that would touch the power lines and conduct it down to them. But it, it, it's an unexpected result of, like you said, the explosion in the number of drones. And the, the drones are getting lighter and lighter, so the the number that don't have to be registered is exploding too. It's Today in Ohio. How much money might Ohio be losing by failing to do its due diligence when alerted that people in Ohio might be getting benefits in two states. Lisa, this is a finding from the state auditor. Yeah, Keith Faber had a report that he released Tuesday, and he found that the state could be paying out from $5.3 million up to $24 million a year to ineligible Medicaid beneficiaries who are claiming benefits in other states. The report found that 59% of the alerts that they receive of potential duplicate Medicaid payments through a system called called the public instant a public assistance reporting information system were not resolved. So Ohio make, they also found that Ohio Medicaid has not addressed previous issues from 2020 that were called out in a U.S. Department of Health and Human Services report. And also a January 2022 audit says that it the you know they failed to recoup 118 million dollars in erroneous payments or they paid for prison inmate managed care mistakenly or deceased residents over a three-year period. Uh, Ohio Medicaid Director Maureen Corcoran says the system generates excessive alerts. It, you know, it takes time, you know, for caseworkers to deal with this. It adds to their workload. They say they're working currently to reduce that volume. And the COVID emergency made it harder to get information from other states so they could verify whether people were getting, you know, benefits in other states. But if they're losing millions of dollars, why don't they take one of those millions and commit it to hiring enough people to check it out? They're losing money in two ways. One, by not checking it out, you allowed the double dipping to go on longer, sucking more money out of the system. And two, you don't catch the people and get the money back. If you charge somebody with this kind of fraud, they're always required to pay restitution. It doesn't make sense to have that much money going out the door and not stop it because it would cost a lot less to hire people to track it down. I salute Keith Faber's office for, for looking into this and coming up with these alarming yeah, And he had some recommendations, but uh, adding to the workforce was not among them. He did recommend updated guidance for addressing these alerts that, that slow everybody down and also identify and recoup, recoup all improper payments. So in three months in 2021, there were 42,807 Ohioans that had Medicaid enrollments in other states. Okay. Interesting story. It's today in Ohio. A jail guard is suing Cuyahoga County because of an invasive search he underwent when he showed up for work. Courtney, I think this is a small story, but anybody that would put themselves in this position would probably be as infuriated as the jail guard. What's this about? 
Yeah, and you just think of everything corrections officers go through. This couldn't have been a fun thing to be added to the plate of a work day. You know, uh, jail officer Joshua Smith, he filed suit late Monday in federal court against the county and the sheriff's department, saying that he was illegally searched when he entered the jail to go to work one day in April. Um, so he said protective services office, protective services officers forced him to take off his pants and his underwear uh, during a search without explaining to him why they needed to get so invasive. This happened after Smith was entering the jail and he went through a body scanner. That's a new piece of equipment that they installed earlier this year to try and cut down on drugs and contraband from getting into the jail. And apparently when Smith went through this scanner, there were some anomalies in his groin area He went through the scanner a couple other times, and then protective service officers pulled him into another room and ordered him to, you know, take off his pants. They they searched him for contraband. Nothing was found. So, you know, Smith's contending in this lawsuit that he could have gone through a far less intrusive search. They could have used a metal detecting wand. They could have used a drug-sniffing dog. And he also points out in his lawsuit that when women officers require further searching, they, they don't get this invasive kind of full search. Look, I understand the county's drive to make sure drugs aren't coming in. They've had drug overdose deaths. Drugs are available inside the jail. They get in there some ways. We've seen other guards get charged. So it's a smart thing they're doing to try to stop it. But he does seem to make a good point. Before you get to this level of humiliation for a staff member, why not use the drug sniffing dog and and the other methods and make this the the examination of last resort? Uh, I I I can understand why he's taking action. You, if the frustration you'd feel over this would be pretty overwhelming. Yeah, and and like you said, the drugs are a real problem here. You know, uh, the body scanner. That was a good thing that the county put in, but where do you where do you draw the line? You know, it's Smith's attorney said, offered this statement to us. Nothing on the day in question or at any time in in his fourteen years of service warranted the suspension of his civil rights and the humiliation and degradation that he experienced. You just got to think that's an awful experience when you're going to work. Or, or they should have explained to him what their probable cause was to take such a drastic action. I mean, maybe there was an investigation yeah. that incorrectly pointed to him as part of the problem, but they should have at least informed him. It's today in Ohio. It's a small step, but a symbolic one, and one that Laura Johnston thinks is a big deal. What is the West Side Market planning to do with expired food in the future, Laura? They're going to compost it. So as someone who has composted for a decade, this makes me really happy. And so if food items are not, or sorry, if food items are still good, they would go to the hungry, which is using food for a good purpose. City Council this week signed off on this contract for the pilot program with Rust Belt Riders. That's a Cleveland-based business. It facilitates commercial and residential composting around Northeast Ohio. It services about 300 businesses and is growing. A couple of years I had never heard of it before. So the goal is to create this more eco-friendly and sustainable practice at the market. It generates tens of thousands of pounds of food waste every year. We don't know exactly how much. They haven't done an audit, but the city is using a $60,000 grant awarded to the Cleve, uh, awarded to Cleveland Neighborhood Progress from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, at least to pay for it for the near future. 
So they don't have any idea how much it is, how much food they no. actually sent to landfills now? No, they don't. So they have to do this audit to figure it out. But it is a huge... I'm Obviously, this is one step. It's one business in the city. But it is known for being a foodie culture. And I think that it is symbolic as well. And maybe this will encourage other people to do it. Because I once heard that up to a third of all everything in our landfills was food, which is insane. And that's what made me start wanting to compost because we and, and up to 40% of food that we buy ends up going to waste. Think about all the people that are hungry just in this community. And it seems like a really silly problem that we have food going to waste when people are hungry. I don't know. Is it really going to waste? According to Ohio's definition of green energy, this could be a green <laughs> energy source because it decomposes over the eons and becomes methane. But Courtney wrote the story and she said, yeah, I, I, right? I, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I did want to just point out part of this contract with Rust Belt Riders that I think is pretty cool. We'll see where it goes. We'll see if it gets executed down the line. But they're to create a roadmap for a potential composting program for city residents. So, you know, if all goes well, I think Cleveland is dipping its toe in the composting waters. And if it feels fine... They might jump in further. Our they can't even get the recycling right. Are they going to get composting right? Our Saving Your Money columnist, Sean McDonald, wrote a great piece earlier this year about a giant eagle program in, in, in other grocery stores where they take their close to expiring food, put them in mystery boxes. You pay very little money and then you take it home and have surprise food. I wonder if the West Side Market could do something like that as well. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think what the the city's eyeing here, though, is to get get food that's like that or, or similar to that in, into shelters, food banks, and give it to the hungry. But think about all the work they're doing to make the West Side Market more of a destination and more desirable for people to go. And I think this will this will help. You know, they want more seating. They want more people to eat there. And when I was at a public market in Vancouver last, well, in February, there was, you know, three bins. There was a recycling bin. There was a trash bin. It said landfill, right? So you know, you know where it's going. And then a compost. And I think it just makes the city seem more progressive. And I'm all for that. Unless every day at the end of the day, a, a trash person comes and dumps all three into the same Which bin. Which is and kind what of happens. Disabuses your notion. Let's, let's not go there, Laura. I know where you're going. Let's just stop uh, right there. It's Today in Ohio. That's it for the Wednesday discussion. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens.